Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'd like to introduce Dmitry Badyarov. Dmitry is a professional designer of concert-grade violins, as well as a musician, mentor, and entrepreneur. He started playing violin at the age of eight, becoming a member of Le Petit Band, a Belgian ensemble famous for playing Baroque music and selling out concerts as a solo performer. As a child in Soviet Russia, he couldn't afford to buy an instrument which could properly showcase his talent. Frustrated by the sounds produced by the basic violin he had, he decided to rebuild his instrument to improve his own performance at the age of 11. He had a successful career as a master violin maker in addition to playing the violin. But in January of 2013, Dimitri had a massive stroke, which almost killed him and left him paralyzed down his left side. Doctors told him he would have to relearn how to walk and then broke the devastating news that he was unlikely to ever play the violin again. Now at 51, Dimitri offers online training for instrument makers, teaching them how to create pieces which stand out from the crowd and tell a story. Welcome to the show, Dimitri. Uh, my pleasure, Jessica. And this is such a brilliant introduction. Thank you so much. I really don't know what can I add after that. <laughs> Great. That's the life yeah. story. That's all wrapped up now. <laughs> no, um, yes. But let's let's really get into the meat of things. So you were playing violin at a high level, even as a child. And then at the same yeah. time, you're building amazingly yeah. crafted violins. What was that like? And how long were you kind of juggling those two things? Well, yeah, um, I started playing the violin at the age of eight and around 11, at the age of 11, I discovered that my violin actually didn't sound anywhere as good as the violin of my professor who played a wonderful 18th century, very valuable Italian instrument. And one day I remember it as if it happened, happened, you know, a week ago. So I was 11 and I had to work on the sound production and, you know, how to make that high quality sound. And no matter how I, how hard I worked and how much I sweated, I just could not possibly get that kind of sound that I really would love to. Mm. And desperate, I kind of stopped playing. I looked at my professor right into his eyes. <laughs> By the way, we are very close friends still with my professor <laughs> ever since. And I told him, Simon Grigorievich, look at your violin. And now look at my violin. Doesn't matter how hard I practice, I will never get that kind of sound. So first, things first, I have to fix my instrument. <laughs> and he agreed with me. So he introduced me to an instrument maker in the city. And um, yeah, that was in the southern part of Russia, a beautiful, beautiful uh, city situated in the mountains with absolutely incredible, beautiful nature. And yeah, I was captivated by the workshop and the, the appearance of this master. He looked like an elderly magician uh, <laughs> from some kind of fairy tale with all these tools and uh, wooden shavings all around the place and beautiful musical instruments. And I, I looked around and I looked at him and I said that, well, actually, I would love to know the construction of the violin. Would you please, please, please accept me as an apprentice? And well, I was lucky that elderly gentleman 
who happened to be absolutely incredible pedagogue and educator. Well, he accepted me in his workshop. That's how I began at the age of 11. Yeah, I was introduced to instrument making, but I didn't make my violin just yet. So that took a little bit longer when I was in St. Petersburg at one of the elite schools of uh, music. And I felt really frustrated because all of the classmates played very valuable instruments. Today, these valuable instruments are priced six or even seven figures. And I played really, really poor kind of factory, almost mass-produced instrument. And for me, there was no way of um, buying such a precious, valuable instrument. So I thought the only way to get one is to craft one. And well, that's how I began. That was a quite, a, quite a journey. <laughs> I can right. talk about it really forever. Because when I started making my violin, I just had that really burning desire to create a very good concert quality instrument for myself. I wanted to crack that code, so to speak, the thought process of the ancient masters. But I didn't have any tools. I didn't have an even bench. So I was sitting in my flat in St. Petersburg and carving that my first violin on my lap. Believe it or not, I didn't have even the bench. <laughs> Okay. And uh, yeah, but somehow, yes, well, getting those tools is a whole different story. Right. This first violin happened to get a diploma at a violin making competition in Moscow in 1992. Huh. And this was yeah, a very unexpected success. I was, of course, very inspired. At the same time, this was like, like kind of a warning sign for me, sight for me because uh, Jessica hears, we just imagine a room full of violins, like 200 instruments. Mm-hmm. And they were all they were all copies of um, valuable antique instruments like such as Stradivari or Guarneri, and they all looked really similar, almost indistinguishable. Though they were made by seventy something other instrument makers, wow. and this was for me just a kind of a sign that well, I don't believe in that aesthetic, and albeit the quality and the level was high, very high indeed. And I decided to never participate in violin-making competitions again, and instead to dedicate all my time to finding out what are the reasons for the violin birth, why it has that shape, Mm. what were the original ideas, philosophical background, cultural backgrounds, because you see, the ancient masters in the 16th or 17th century, they didn't have the posters to copy from. They had to be original creators. And well, that's how I got into what I'm doing today. So it's been a very long journey, 28 years, uh, (laughs) studying this thought process and up to that crisis, health crisis, which indeed nearly killed. I didn't realize actually how, how valuable this knowledge is. And that moment when I thought, well, I could have died and could have taken all my knowledge and my experience to the grave, I, I realized, well, thanks to my wife, actually, that I could perhaps play a bigger role in life and help other instrument makers to keep this beautiful cultural tradition alive, right. uh, teach other musicians about the values and the philosophical background in musical instruments and share this story with their audiences so that they also fall in love with this beautiful ancient story. And mm. so that's, that's why I am today. So this is why today I love nothing more than helping other instrument makers to create um, instrument making businesses that they will love and keep this cultural tradition alive. Wow. No, the, it's such a journey, what you just said. Yes. One thing led to the next. And I think it sounds like your stroke really clarified things for you because, you know, you had worked so hard to understand the craft of making instruments that 
it, it would be such a pity that you would bring that to the grave, as you said. Let's yeah. talk about how do you study the craft and the art of violin making? Are there books? Did you have other people who taught you? First of all, yeah, is, how, you know, how do you get into that? That is a really fantastic question, Jessica. Thank you for this. So the traditional way of getting education as an instrument maker today is going to an academy of violin making or school of violin making. There are several schools all around the world. When I did start in Russia, there were no schools, so I had to go down the traditional route of apprenticeship to an instrument maker. But all this research, all these things started for me, indeed, after my first trip from what was ex-Soviet Union to Europe, and that is 1989, I believe, no, wait a second, 1988. And that was a concert tour in Spain with the celebrated maestro Rostropovich as a conductor. And we happened to play the open Roman theater in Merida. This is a very famous UNESCO site. It's all over the place. If the listeners want to check on in Google, mm -hmm. they will find lots of beautiful, beautiful photographs of this um, venue. So it, imagine this is like an amphitheater, quite ruins because it's, uh, I don't know, more than a thousand years old or something like that. Uh, so it is an open air and you see an orchestra on stage. It was midnight in July, very hot, beautiful night, the sky full of stars. So there is an orchestra on stage and you hear the sounds of Romeo and Juliet by Prokofiev. And I felt absolutely fascinated because, well, the music is great and the maestro is great, of course, but the sound, goodness, this, the quality of sound of this open air theater, I could just believe, I couldn't believe my ears because it sounded like the finest concert hall ever. It just didn't sound at all like open air. And that's, what, that's when I realized, look, the ancient masters knew something that the moderns, modern architects or modern masters have no clue about. And I absolutely had this burning desire ever since to discover what is it that ancient masters knew because they surely utilize this knowledge also in instrument making. Mm. And so as a result... Yeah, that was actually, this experience was one of the results, uh, one of the causing reasons yeah. uh, why I decided not to participate in competitions anymore because I wanted to study the, yeah, this ancient, ancient knowledge rather than just making copies. Yeah. And with the encouragement of my bright, bright, bright teacher in St. Petersburg, I pursued and very soon after I, I, could, I just ran out of books, literally, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they were, uh, they are fantastic libraries in St. Petersburg fantastic libraries but um uh, very soon i think i have uh, i have read all of them and i've discovered that well i can't find anything from the really thousands of years ago really ancient sources because violin is not really european not really russian uh, tradition it's a european tradition and that's when i decided understood that i really have to move to europe uh, mm -hmm. to do this research. And for that reason, finally, in 1994, I was able to move to Brussels to become a student of the celebrated Sigiswald Kirchen, the founder of Laptit Band, mm. where I happened to work, as I mentioned in the introduction. Mm. And uh, yes, it was with the, with the encouragement of uh, Sigiswald Kirchen, I was able to pursue this research and read um, uh, hundreds and upon hundreds, probably thousands of ancient treatises on uh, aesthetics and music and how all these combined in musical instruments and uh, drawing, drawing and drawing those instruments on paper. 
I was probably, I, pr I probably looked like a madman to the <laughs> outsiders because you would sometimes see me drawing violins on paper, placemats in the restaurants, on napkins, mm -hmm. literally everywhere. I was drawing them in, on the trains, in buses, in, in hotels, in airplanes during those concert tours. Mm. And um, to my surprise, absolutely no one was interested in this research. No one was fascinated musicians uh, kept rejecting me for many 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 years actually it was quite a rough period in my time uh, in my life but that drove me to depression and uh, decision to doubts rather than decision doubts maybe these musicians are right maybe i will never mm. succeed as an instrument maker maybe indeed i should just stop doing this research and because I was told, come on, Dimitri, are you trying to reinvent the will? Why don't you just make copies of uh, Stradivari violins? Because that's what the customers want. Mm. And at a certain moment, I thought, well, enough is enough. Indeed, uh, it's not working. And I have to stop making instruments and just focus on playing. Mm. And I did. So I gave up instru uh, instrument making wow. okay. <laughs> after a little a dramatic episode in 97 or something like this. I even oh. crushed a violin, <laughs> which oh. I loved very much. But <laughs> wow. today I can laugh about this. But at that moment, it was not very funny. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, and I started touring a lot. It was a beautiful career, actually, with amazing musicians, lots of incredible music concert tours all around the world. But the dream of making that dream violin, cracking the code of the ancient masters, really yeah. getting into their minds has really never, ever abandoned me. And with the encouragement of Sigiswell Kaiken, I decided to pursue this and just dedicate even more time into this research. Mm. And, and slowly, slowly, things kind of started working. And in around 2002, there was one, like the very first Eureka moment. I built a violin, which was not a copy, was original, uh, my, my original model based on my research and this was this violin was purchased by the concert master of la petite band absolutely amazing musician rio terracado a brilliant violinist conductor and professor from japan and i was so inspired i thought wow finally i am onto something if musicians like him buy my instruments and then slowly colleagues in the orchestra they discovered that well actually what i do works so they started ordering my instruments and uh, musicians started visiting my workshop from all around europe and then also world-class musicians such as um, Sigiswal Kaiken and uh, uh, Sergei Malov got interested and started ordering my instruments wow. by the hips. Yeah, slowly instrument makers also became interested in what is, the, what is, what is this thing that I'm doing. So I started, first I started online, actually. Mm -hmm. And I was even not sure if I am able to teach online. So... In December 2017, I just invited a few instrument makers from all around the world to join my online training, mm -hmm. and where I taught them how to design these instruments using the um, ancient uh, system, mm -hmm. which I which I created, and which I call the Old Masters Tones Technique. And I was very pleased with, pleased with the results. So there was like almost 100% success rate. So people. Uh, were able to design violence, even though they were in, in Chile, in, in, in Malaysia, in Singapore, in Spain, in the United States, so, uh, literally all, over, all around the place. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided to establish my Authentic Instrument Makers Academy, where mm -hmm. I teach now all aspects of instrument making. So that is 
yeah, the, the design, the aesthetics, and also the marketing and the business, um, business side of it. Right. So how, how, do you, how do you establish yourself in the market? How do you present your work? How do you price your work? How do you sell your work? Because all these things, mm. instrument makers are usually uh, not taught. Right, right. And many, even incredible instrument makers suffer just because of lack of these entrepreneurial skills. Mm-hmm. So today when I see successes of my students, oh goodness, I just like nothing on planet earth makes me as uh, happy as seeing successes of my students, really. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. So yeah, I'm doing this uh, two things essentially. So uh, helping instrument makers with uh, creating the businesses that they feel happy with and Mm -hmm. uh, still creating unique custom design, constant great instruments to help unique musicians to fulfill their musical aspirations. Right. And I think it's very notable that in the moment you were in that open air concert hall or not even a hall, it was just... Um, just out in the open, you realize that there's something more beyond the copies of the Stradivariuses or, yes. you know, all of those instruments that all look the same and just the little, little things that you couldn't, that you could barely notice. Those things were just a little different. You wanted to go beyond that yeah, and discover the secrets yeah, I, I see. I see in your profile that you are a visual designer, also and fine artist. Besides right. a lot of other things, I feel like about this thing we could talk forever with lots of fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I'm wondering why are violins shaped the way they are because it's such a unique shape. I mean, obviously the middle is to allow for the bow to be able to oh, yeah. reach, but yeah. Oh, by the way, you have just quoted from uh, Pablo Nassare, um, late 17th century, uh, yes, late 17th century, early 18th century source. So he has said exactly the same words which you have just said. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's a really wonderful question, Jessica. Why the instrument has that shape and not any other shape? Well, uh, if we dig down into the century, so there is a lot of Pythagorean tradition in European culture. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that? You see, the Pythagoreans, uh, they believed that the universe is created according to musical intervals. Mm. So there is this uh, concept of the harmony of the universe, which was really this, the core of everything you call European today, besides the religious, of course, ideas, but that was really the core of the philosophy. So um, there is a lot uh, written on this, and actually not only in European languages, there are also treatises in Arabic talking about exactly the same thing about the music in the universe and how, uh, how even the planets that spin around the sun, well, Back then, they believed the planets spinned around the Earth, mm. but still they spinned around the Earth, and each planet produced a musical tone. So all of these planets together, they sound like I, yeah, some kind of cosmic orchestra, which was very finely tuned. Why did they think about this? Is um, well, allegedly it starts with the Pythagoras discovering musical ratios. How, you know, like if you, if you hit, for example, a bell and then uh, it produces a, a, a tone of some frequency, obviously. So if you take this 
if you if you take another bell which is exactly half the size it will sound an octave higher mm -hmm. and if it is uh, in proportion three to two parts yeah mm -hmm. so that sounds like a pure fifth and right. on and on so everything's so all these uh, ratios they produce the harmonical ratios produce harmonical intervals right and uh, so if we come back to uh, musical instruments. So the violin actually has all of these musical ratios built into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the um, the shoulder or the shoulders of the violin, according to Pablo Nassara, this is actually even documented. Uh, they have a ratio of an octave, whereas the waist of the violin, the middle part, has the ratio of pure twelfth. So, which is also a musical interval, and the um, the width of the lower part of the violin is minor sixth, oh. and the distances between the corners are also musical. The distances between the top and the bottom of the instrument is a major third, for example, according to Pablo Nassare. And there are so many beautiful treatises from uh, 17th and 18th century uh, talking about music in musical instruments. And not only that, but even in architecture. So, for example, Alberti, a very influential Italian architect in the 16th or 17th century, please correct me, I'm, I'm not quite sure the date. But anyway, mm. uh, Alberti uh, says that he recommends the architects, when you complete a drawing, a design for a palace or church or whatever kind of architectural work, the last thing you have to do is go to the musicians and um, ask for their help to bring the building to the perfection of its musical concords, because musicians are the greatest masters in that sort of proportions. Wow. And you would see music everywhere, in painting, in sculpture, in architecture. Uh, wow. When you walk uh, along the streets of ancient European cities, you will see, you will see literally a symphony in stone, you will be able to, uh, yeah, you, you will see music in everything because this is how the ancient masters thought. Right. And yeah. naturally they, of course, uh, embedded this same philosophy in musical instruments. Mm. And once you have mastered this thought process, which took me 28 years until finally I cracked it, finally understood it, I just came to this realization that, of course, instrument makers from the 17th or 18th century didn't leave any treatises about how to design violins because this is so simple. Even a five years young child can remember once and forever. If you, do, if you remember simply the melody of the violin, because you don't have to write it in numbers or in, the ra in ratios, you can translate these ratios into a simple tune which you can memorize. Oh, so you finally realized that yes. it, was a, it was a philosophy on everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. It, the music and the intervals and yeah. basically the math of it is yeah. just built into the way they see everything. Yes. It's very interesting you brought up this word math because um, um, this process of designing instruments for me was so difficult and I could not complete a, a, a design for a new model. And why would you need to design a new model? For example, well... Um, for example, you have a customer, you meet a customer, uh, let's say 
uh, not particularly giant lady from uh, Latin America or from, from Japan or from who is not as big as men, they typically sometimes suffer a really a lot playing uh, a standard size, size violin mm. because their bodies are just not that big. So I have seen, uh, I have had these customers coming to my workshop who play the violin with pain for years, risking developing tendinitis mm. or other profession-related ailments. Yeah. And I would just design an instrument for them that would fit exactly the type of sound that they like and, and their body. And these are beautiful and sometimes emotional moments. So uh, I had one of such violins designed for a very talented Colombian violinist. And when she came finally to my workshop to try the instrument mm -hmm. that was designed specially for her, she, she took the violin, she started playing, and a few minutes later, um, there were tears in her eyes. Wow. And I, I was a little bit scared. Oh, goodness, uh, she, maybe she doesn't like the sound. <laughs> 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 but then she, she said that, Dimitri, it's the first time in my life I play the violin without pain. Wow. Yeah, this just was like such a beautiful moment. And I really love doing this for musicians. Hmm. So the way you're doing it is different from others because you can adjust the size and you're aware and you want to fit it yeah. to the person, not just yeah. make another reproduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How else are your instruments different? Like, can somebody look at an instrument made by you and say, oh, yeah, this is a Badyarov? I heard people uh, among my clients and also not just my clients telling that there is something very distinct Badyarov in the sound. So that's what they tell me, and I'm trying to understand what exactly they mean. Mm -hmm. And it's probably something you cannot really quantify. It's maybe more the feeling, yeah. something in the sound. I do hear there is something special in the sound, and I know where it comes from. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. That's, okay. what they, that's, that's their feedback. I see. Visually as well, of course. Yeah, visually it's a little easier. Yeah, you can sometimes tell, yeah, that's a, that's a very original model. And there is none other like that, yeah. It's also fun doing that. Yeah. What is that like to assign a value to your instruments, to your work? And what does it mean to have one violin that's, let's just say, 5,000, another that's 500,000? What's the difference? That's a really great uh, question. So in today's, especially classical music, if a musician wants to feel, uh, wants to fit within the professional context and in a professional environment, musicians frequently play uh, antique instruments and those antique instruments sometimes priced in six or even seven figures. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a lot of quality in the sound. Yes, there is a lot of quality in the sound of those instruments. So what do musicians do if they cannot necessarily afford uh, $100,000 or $200,000 uh, or euros instrument, and, but they still want that level, that appearance, that thrill, this feeling in the instrument. Okay. Well, the solution for this musician would be going with a newly made instrument. Yeah. And it's when, where instrument makers help musicians achieve what they really want while also making it uh, viable, doable for them without them having to invest uh, hundreds of thousands of euros mm -hmm. or dollars in the instruments. Well, that defines definitely the value in the instruments. How come older instruments sound better? 
that's actually not totally true. I would, uh, yeah, um, I hear what you're saying. And yeah, there is this opinion that ancient instruments necessarily sound better. Mm-hmm. However, in the past couple of decades, maybe, modern instrument making has evolved so much. There is so much new research, there's so much new knowledge. Nowadays, they are living instrument makers, creating instruments frequently far better than antique instruments. Ah. So this, this was definitely the truth, maybe mm-hmm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but it's no longer the case. So you can definitely get a great instrument built uh, you know, a week ago. Mm-hmm. That would sound maybe even better than vast majority of antique instruments. Oh, yeah. what, what accounts for that? Is it the shape of it? Is it the fine details? Like what makes it sound better? That's a very subtle discussion. It's a little bit like speaking about fine art. Yeah, there are so, <laughs> so many, many subtleties in this. So of course it is the flexibility in the instrument. So it is the, how at least how I work with my customers. I really like to go very deep into their ideal sound. And it is very difficult to describe the sound. So when somebody says, well, I love warm sound or I love bright sound, well, warm sound or bright sound, it means different things for different people. Mm -hmm. So I usually start with trying them to open up and describe what does that mean for them. Mm -hmm. And usually questions like, all right, yeah, um, yes, if you're saying that warm sound is important for you, uh, it, it is what you like. Why is that important to you? How does that make you feel? How do you feel with an instrument on stage when you have that warm or brilliant sound or something? So I try to dive really deep and feel what that musician wants to achieve. Mm-hmm. Maybe some even professional pains that they would like to overcome. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are feeling um, overly um, stressed or something like some, There is a lot of competition. And uh, sometimes musicians can feel like they are not fitting because they have a, an inst- a cheaper instrument, for example. Mm-hmm. So that affects their relationships with the colleagues. It affects their chances of success. Mm-hmm. And uh, I discuss all of these things. So that when I talk to musicians about really deep things, sometimes they really get surprised. Why are you asking such, such questions? And I, right. I, I have to tell them, well, I appreciate that these are the weirdest uh, questions you have ever heard. <laughs> uh, maybe you even never thought about this, but what you are going to share with me and how you are going to share it with me will give me so much insight about what are your aspirations, what are the issues that we are going to solve once and for all in an instrument specially designed for you. And when I explain this, they usually really open up and find it a very yeah, fascinating journey of creating an instrument like this. Hmm. So what is the value in it when a musician can really fulfill their musical dreams? I would say it's priceless mm-hmm. because it's it, it helps them succeed. It helps them make better music. Great music definitely has an impact on audiences. And this is what we are crafting, actually. So I believe that musicians don't need just an instrument, but they need help with their professional, personal, artistic aspirations. Mm. And they need an instrument that would help 
to fulfill those aspirations, definitely. You have a much greater perspective on your work than just building a wooden instrument. You, You see it as this is part of who they are and music has a role in their life but also yeah. uh, in the audience's lives and it, it goes yeah. just way beyond the actual physical instrument itself oh yes absolutely yeah. yeah yeah it reminds me actually you treat it almost as if you are an architect but you're not making a building for somebody you're you're building them an instrument yeah it's uh, feels indeed um it feels like art from yeah. from start to the end it's like it feels like an architect feels like a designer feels like a painter a, a draftsman even a psychologist yeah yeah there's that too. there's a lot of that as well <laughs> mm. and it's just a, such a wonderful such a beautiful thing to do yeah or to teach other instrument makers how to do that how do you know when you've gotten your design down and it's working for somebody? <laughs> Wonderful question. Uh, yes. Well, in the beginning, I would design something. I would normally then make a test of some kind, so just uh, create an instrument or two and see if that gave me the result I anticipated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these days, sometimes I just design something and I feel straight away that is exactly the thing that we need to, well, that that will give that result i guess it's uh, it helps to have all this experience mm-hmm. so yeah so it, it's a feeling you you it's, just know when it, it's right yeah it's a feeling it's very interesting there is uh, giorgio vasari's book it's ancient book the lives of artists where he talks about a number of artists and how they worked Very, very interesting book. And there's one part where he speaks about the importance of calculations and mathematics and the perfection and the number is so important Mm. um, because it is still very Pythagorean, of course, and it is very uh, Renaissance, but already Mannerist Renaissance. So that means that for the Mannerists in the Renaissance Italy, the number was still very important, but less important than, let's say, for the Germans, like Albrecht Dürer. Mm-hmm. So the number was important, but the visual appeal was even more important. So Vasari would say, okay, design your work, because if it lacks design, it lacks everything. But if your eye is offended, don't hesitate to make adjustments. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, the eye will never stop censuring on this. Yeah, And... That's actually how I started you know, to work. In the beginning, it was number was the everything for me. A number was the god. I couldn't. It had to be perfect. It had to be mathematically perfect. And sometimes I felt no, but for the eye, it doesn't work. It just looks a little bit weird. Mm. But number wise, everything is perfect. So, yeah, I was kind of prisoner of my own philosophy, so to speak. Mm. Wow. You know, like yeah. twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. And then slowly I started abandoning this approach and, you know, kind of finding the middle way where it works visually, but also work works acoustically mm-hmm. in terms of numbers, proportions. So you design it maybe mathematically, and then as you looked at it, make adjustments based on the aesthetics? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I designed it mathematically, and literally I was designing them 
particularly a long time ago, but uh, lately I just use music intervals. Look, if you can divide, uh, let's say, a vibrating string of a violin into um, proportions or into ratios, well, you can calculate, for example, well, if you have a whole string, it is a unison. If you divide it, then it is an octave. So you can actually calculate all the ratios, two-thirds, five-eighths, you know, three-quarters, mm -hmm. uh, seven nine. Uh, uh, eight ninths or something like this. I mean, you can calculate. Mm -hmm. But when you calculate, you are referring only to the numbers, but you don't hear what it sounds like. Right. So I stopped doing this. And instead of calculating, I just listen to the harmonies, literally. Oh, okay. So I design musical instruments using music itself rather than mathematical calculation. And that's just results in very much better sound. It's a very different way of working. It's very different, yeah. 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 And that's what I want to bring to instrument makers also, because uh, you see 25, 30 years ago, there were no mass-produced instruments. Mm. Today, there are um, factories producing uh, violins, a million of violins per month or something, like yeah. huge yeah. numbers. And those uh, are also copies of the same posters mm. produced by individual artists, craftsmen, so the competition is just so insane and just completely makes no sense right. doing the exact same thing everybody else is doing. I really feel it is, it is the time to do things differently in this art. Yeah, exactly. And one can, one can approach it from the po point of view of really modern technology or can approach, you know, can create something really new but put these thousands of years of cultural traditions beneath mm. and even combine both, like, give an instrument a very modernistic look, mm -hmm. something totally revolutionary, but still keep this ancient philosophy sound right. intact. The wisdom, yeah. 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 How has your knowledge and your understanding, this deep understanding of music, of the intervals and you know, this whole philosophy, how has it affected how you see other things in your life? Yeah, that was really fun traveling around Europe and uh, seeing music in, in architecture. It was really great pleasure uh, touring with um, La Petite Band, mm -hmm. for example, a group of absolutely extraordinary musician, musicians led by Sigiswald Kaiken, who is uh, my, my guru and my mentor. I really modeled what I have done in instrument making upon him mm -hmm. because as a, as a musician, what he has done, he has revived this whole page in the history of classical music and he recreated this you know, historically informed approach, mm -hmm. revived the music in the way it sounded to the composers and audience in the 18th century. So he also read all these tons of treatises mm -hmm. on, uh, on music and then revived that same approach in music. And I thought, wow, that's so in, in, inspiring. So I want to do the same thing in violin making. It will definitely mm -hmm. work. Uh -huh. I didn't expect it would be such a difficult, uh, not easy journey, but definitely it worked. And with Sigiswald Kaiken, it was uh, really fun uh, being somewhere in Salamanca, you know, having a coffee on piazza, mm -hmm. and just uh, talking. Look, Sigiswald, at this church there. You see the height is exactly an octave. I look at the entrance the church. It's a pure 12, don't you see? And with we could talk forever uh, about palaces and literally, literally, quite literally, translating them into something that you can even whistle, you know, like wow. uh, me melodies. Wow. Yeah. 
you know, like if you are walking in the street, any town, and if the width of the street is equal to the height of the buildings on the sides, well, and you can say, well, this is, um, <laughs> this is unison. Mm -hmm. So it's like a unison. And if the buildings are uh, half the height yeah. of the width of the street, so this is an octave. octave yeah. Exactly. So you can <laughs> kind of translate everything you see around yourself into uh, harmonies. Yeah. Wow, that's so beautiful. You start hearing what yeah. you see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. And that inspired you, um, you know, from what you were seeing, you actually reconstructed an instrument called the violoncello da spala, which yeah, yes, yeah, yes, which yeah. became extinct. It was in the 18th century yeah. used widely. Yes. It's, it's basically a larger violin that has a strap going around the neck. Yes. Why did you do that? And, you know, how have people received that? Yeah, that was rebuilt upon request of Sigiswalk Hiken. So um, I started maybe around 2002, 2003. It was during a concert tour somewhere in France. After a very successful concert, I was having a few drinks with friends at the, at the bar of the hotel. And then um, suddenly Sigiswalk Hiken approached me and he, he said, Dimitri, what do you think about this? Did this instrument called Violoncello da Spala ever existed? Hmm. And, uh, well, I... I was a bit surprised by this question, mm -hmm. uh, but I told him, yeah, well, yes, I think so, because uh, it looks like indeed it was tuned in the cello range, because it is like a viola, a very large viola, but it has uh, twice the height of the ribs, yeah. uh, twice the depth of a normal viola, that's what I wanted to say. And uh, so the next thing he said, well, you know, I would like you to consider if you would be able to build one for me. And that was really exciting, really, really exciting. So I told Sigiswalt, yeah, that's, mm, let me think about this because there is something to research, definitely. Yeah. Well, that was followed by six months full-time, nearly full-time research at um, European museums and libraries and mm -hmm. trying to find surviving instruments and try to read documents about violoncello da Spalla, what that was, how did they play it, and uh, indeed, was it violoncello in the Baroque times? And slowly we figured out that indeed this instrument was not called violoncello da Spalla, it was called simply violoncello, so it is the modern-day cello's predecessor oh. and the instrument of choice for lots of important Baroque cello composers. Mm -hmm. Uh, notably for Johann Sebastian Bach, who wrote his famous uh, six suites for violoncello solo. So all of the six suites were most likely written for this small violoncello played against the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th this was really a fascinating research and a fascinating discovery. And uh, when the instrument was created, I think it's Valkyrie took it on stage, and because Sigiswalk Haiken is such a, a world-class famous musician, the instrument got a degree of uh, prominence. It was like a, a big sensation in classical music world indeed. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Did you, were you able to find surviving instruments to kind of model after? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. At the time when I was doing my research, I found something like maybe 35 or 40 instruments, mm. but I had access to only four of them, and I decided to focus on those four. 
And the main issue was that all of those instruments were not in original condition. So they were either rebuilt into violas or they were oh. rebuilt into cellos for children. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I had to kind of figure out which parts are original and how do I combine them in, in a new reconstruction. Mm. Well, because Sigisvald Kirchen was um, uh, quite aware and very interested in my research of proportional design, the old master stones technique, as I call it today, he felt that the best way to proceed would be to recreate something using parts from surviving instruments, but combine them using this ancient philosophy. Okay. And that is the reason behind success of this instrument. This is the reason why it worked out so nicely. I see. Wow. It's yeah. as if you were kind of going into a mystery case, trying to piece together yeah. what yeah. was done yeah. to them. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I knew, knowing, knowing the character of this absolutely fantastic musician, I think as well, Kaiken, I knew that it is going to be on concert stage anyway, mm. if I didn't make it really work. Mm. So <laughs> there was a kind of a bit of pressure i knew that i better have to take it really seriously and really make it work because otherwise i will be world famous <laughs> maker who failed <laughs> at <laughs> the reconstruction of the villanchelda mm -hmm. palace so mm -hmm. yeah i really had stakes to take were it high. seriously yeah, yeah stakes were high yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow no i'm glad it worked out actually there's a wonderful video on youtube of him playing it and yeah it, yeah it looks unlike anything i've seen before and it does sound different from, you know, the cello or the viola. Yeah, indeed. Wow, that, that must have been an adventure. Yeah, it's been a very beautiful adventure with a bit of uh, drama here and there. <laughs> so, for example, <laughs> the first instrument when it was created for Sigiswal Kaiken, he had actually had a concert on it like a week after it was completed. Wow. And it was already announced in concert. I could not afford being late. Uh -huh. I can imagine. One week. Yeah, I was uh, hiring to complete the instrument and I was really confident, 100% confident that it would work. Uh, so I already made an appointment with him at my apartment in Brussels. That's where I lived back then. Mm. And when I actually strung the instrument, I was so shocked. Jessica, you wouldn't believe the uh -oh. instrument was completely deaf. It was like, it didn't sound at all. <laughs> no. So, yeah. I called, it was midnight. I remember it so well. It was midnight. I called my very best friend, Mimo Pirufo, who is a world leading expert into musical strings. Uh. And, uh, and I just asked him, Mimo, what happened? I don't understand this, these strings. They worked so beautifully on a normal viola and they don't work on the spala. And I just don't understand why, because it feels like there is not enough tension. Well, uh, Mimo Pirufo, well, he told me, unfortunately, Dimitri, I cannot tell you what is not working because I don't see the instrument. No. So mm. can you come to Italy? Oh, well, yes. Yeah. So the next morning, uh, <laughs> five o'clock, I was at the airport. <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, one hour and a half later, I was in Vicenza. So we spent three days working days and nights with Pirufo. Tr we tested like kilograms of different strings <laughs> and absolutely nothing worked. Wow. And the night before I left, 
I felt beaten up. I felt ridiculous. I felt like a complete failure. Mm. And Pirufo told, well, Dimitri, I'm sure we can make it work. We just don't have enough time. Maybe next time when you come to Italy again, we'll, we'll make it work. But now we don't have time. Wow. Anyway, so I was in bed feeling devastated. Mm. Um, the, the last night in Italy before flying back to Brussels. At 3, 3 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> uh, Mimo woke me up. I said, Dimitri, come on, get up. I have an idea. This should work. <laughs> At 3 a.m., like complete zombies. <laughs> it, was a, it was beautiful. It was February. It was a full moon, beautiful night, misty, very quiet. So we sneaked into the string-making factory where he produces those strings. He's mm -hmm. actually one of the biggest string-making factories in the world. Oh. And we started making those strings. Oh, and okay. uh, and yes, and then actually he he created a few strings, and he told me he gave them to me and said, "Okay, now try this. Should work." I strung the instrument, I touched the strings with the bow, and I just could not stop playing. Oh, it was wow. so easy. It was so <laughs> beautiful, you know. We were, we, we, it, it was an emotional moment and we, oh, were, yeah. we cried <laughs> no, and they hugged each other and congratulated. It was maybe five o'clock in the morning by that time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wow. So, but then I returned to Brussels with an instrument which had this beautiful sound. Metzig as well, Kaiken, a few days later, he was super happy mm -hmm. and the instrument was born. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's how it started. That is just a story that needs to be shared. I absolutely. Well, th thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share this. Yeah. Yeah, the most important thing is just put full faith. I believe it's very important to have full faith in what your true calling is and just go for it no matter what. Yeah. Because ultimately, you become successful. Ultimately, it makes difference in other people's lives. Right. And Ultimately, it makes you a happy, a happy person. Yeah, and truly, you sharing your story helps everyone, all of us, see that story in ourselves. So thank you for doing what you do. Um, my pleasure sharing, Jessica. 